Hello there, sweet things, and welcome to a special holiday episode of Trans Arcana. I hope you enjoyed the first season, and I'm hoping to bring you another just as eerie second season in the coming year. For the time being, sit back and enjoy a special holiday episode about an ancient demon that went Hollywood. On August 10, 1949, two newspapers reported the following story. A local minister had spoken at a Washington, D.C. meeting of parapsychologists. Parapsychology being the study, as it were, of the paranormal. This includes psychic phenomena, ghosts, and other more mysterious phenomena. The field is generally written off as a pseudoscience. Because, well, generally it is. It tends to attract the sort of people who are already convinced that ghosts are real and then they devote their time to proving it, which is generally the opposite direction in which scientific inquiry is supposed to go. At this meeting, an unnamed minister talked about a family in Maryland who'd been experiencing a number of strange phenomena, all of which centered around a 14-year-old boy named Roland. These phenomena included such classics as scratching noises from the walls, the bed of a young boy shaking violently, and items flying off the shelves around the boy. For those of you familiar with stories of poltergeist hauntings, this probably sounds pretty standard. The minister claimed to have witnessed this phenomena himself, adding that he saw with his own eyes a chair tip over while the boy sat in it, a pallet of blankets the boy slept on mysteriously move around the room through the night, and added that he heard strange vibrating noises coming from the boy's bed at night. Him. When later questioned by a reporter, the minister, still unnamed, claimed the boy had made two trips to a mental hygiene clinic, a sort of 1950s iteration of a mental health clinic, but with everything you'd expect from the phrase 1950s mental health clinic, i.e. probably not great in terms of treatment and facilities. Also, that boy at this point, dubbed Roland, had made an earlier trip to the Midwest and was treated with three separate rites of exorcism from three different Christian faiths, Episcopal, Lutheran, and Roman Catholic. The minister concluded his story by saying that things had been quiet for the past two months in the house. In the following days, later articles would add additional embellishments to the story that the boy let out a string of curses while being exorcised, that 20 to 30 repetitions of an ancient ritual were used to cast the devil out of the boy, that the ritual could only be completed when the boy had been taken to a Catholic church. Each additional iteration of the story seemed to add new elements. One report claiming to be drawn from a minister's diary added a whole slew of supernatural and dramatic phenomena including some dalliances with a Ouija board, through which a deceased Aunt Tilly was contacted. It also included a picture of Christ shaking on the wall, the appearance of words scratched in the skin of Roland's chest, including Lois, Hell, and No School, a bottle of holy water flying through the air, uh, the report also included the claim that, while possessed, Roland slashed at the priest with a bedspring. 
and also while possessed, Roland claimed to be a fallen angel and Satan. And no, those aren't the same thing. We'll do an episode on that later, but I'm not sure if Roland knew that. Roland also supposedly spoke in garbled Latin while possessed. On top of all of this, news reports also included a complex rite of exorcism in which Roland was made to wear a necklace of medallions. And finally, that Roland had a vision of Saint Michael holding a flaming sword before being freed of the possession. Now, we can start picking at some of this because honestly, it kind of deserves more than a little scrutiny. I mean, for goodness sakes, whenever a supernatural story includes a board game that you can buy at a big box store, I'm immediately a little suspicious. But people loved it. The story gained some limited circulation in the DC and surrounding area, but probably would have faded into arcane obscurity were it not for some, let's say, fanciful additions and rewrites from a local author who used the story for inspiration. This local author, a man named William Peter Blatty, decided to write a fictionalized version of the story, adding in new elements, swapping the gender of the possessed child, and most recognizably, naming the entity in possession of the child. Because Roland hadn't named any specific entity beyond Satan, and Blatty wanted something a little more memorable. So he went digging for a good name and found one. A name unearthed from the ruins of ancient Mesopotamia. A name buried for a thousand years under the sand. The name of a wind demon. Pazuzu. Clements, and this is Transarcana, where we take queer looks at the supernatural. Today, we're going to sing the praises of the demon king of the West Wind, Pazuzu, and his place in pop culture, because he's much more present there than most other thousand-year-old demons are. And that all has to do with the exorcism of Roland Doe, and a novel written about him in 1971. Now, you may already be familiar with this story. In fact, if you're the sort of person who likes podcasts like this, I'm 100% confident that you're already familiar with it. So in 1971, William Peter Blatty wrote his book, taking inspiration from the events as he encountered them. Well, that is to say, encountered them in newspaper articles, because Blatty wasn't any sort of eyewitness. Roland's possession was in 1949, and Blatty wrote his book some 22 years later. And Blatty made some adjustments to the story, of course, such as swapping the genders of the possession victim, you know, to make them seem more vulnerable, and developing characters, motivations, etc., etc. And two years after Blatty's book was published, in 1973, it was adapted into a movie with director William Friedkin at the helm. The movie shared its title with Blatty's book. And you might have guessed it by now. It's The Exorcist. And clearly, the story changed along the way. But that does happen with stories. 
This one, though, took a sharp departure from anything close to reality. And we might not know how much exactly if it weren't for the investigative work of Washington historian Mark Obsasnik, who did a ton of digging to get the facts of the exorcism of Roland Doe and wrote this really great article, The Haunted Boy of Cottage City. In it, he investigated the events, how much of them could be verified, and how many of them were unverifiable hearsay. And while I've done my best to sum up his findings, you should really check out his article, if only to see how many layers of fabrication were piled up on top of these events. The short version is that an exorcism was probably performed on Roland in the 1950s, the name Roland of course being a pseudonym, but it was very unlikely that Roland was actually possessed by anything. You see, what Obsasnik figured out was that what was more likely is that Roland was probably a troubled kid. The sort of kid who grew up in a home that was very strongly, maybe overly religious, and maybe not the most nurturing. The sort of kid who had few friends and might have liked to hurt other kids and animals. The sort of kid who loved to play pranks many of which included moving furniture around rooms, some of which though were maybe a little mean-spirited and often played on other people, including family members. And it's very likely that a lot of the events reported in the original articles and testimonials were that same sort of prank. After all, shaking a bed is not so difficult. Shaking it so hard that things fall off shelves is likewise pretty simple. Some of you may have managed that accidentally at some point or another. Anyone with a headboard and an active social life has probably encountered this. And scratching words onto your skin is not a difficult feat. And tapping a marching rhythm is literally a thing many kids learn before they're 10. Making a bed move around a room is easy, especially when it's on springs and has wheels. And as the story picked up momentum, Extra embellishments were added on to it, including the detail provided in a mysterious journal. A journal, by the way, that doesn't match up chronologically to the events as they occurred. Until we get to today, where the story has become kind of a phenomenon, fueled by both the irrational fervor of paranormal investigators and fans of a movie which became both a cult classic and a franchise which results in sort of a collective fandom that loves the exorcist and gets way too invested in its source material. And when there's a large enough group sharing a mindset like that, well, that's ripe for grifting. So what I'm saying is, as we get closer to that inevitable reboot of the exorcist, well, get ready for a bunch of articles about OMG, the real life events that inspired the exorcist that will probably go hard on a number of events that probably didn't happen. I'm sorry, I got a little off track. Back to the story. So yeah, by the time the story got to Blatty, there were already a bunch of issues with the story's factuality. Most of which was that the story was already 90% sus. And Blatty decided to spice it up a little bit for his book, which was, to be fair, a work of fiction. Though 
he and Friedkin would later lean hard into the based-on-true-events shtick. And this is not uncommon. You actually get a lot of this with any story based on, or various gods help us, inspired by true events. With supernatural stories, it gets even worse. In part because supernatural elements are difficult to verify, as we've seen. And witnesses are often reluctant to come forward to confirm or refute for fear of their reputation. So self-styled investigators and documentarians are usually free to make up whatever bullshit they want without fear of reprisal. See also anyone who's written on the Amityville events, including any notorious couples who've made a legacy grifting on it. Sorry, sorry, I did it again. Something about this really sets me off. Maybe it's getting older and reflecting on these things that I loved in my youth, now that I have a more critical eye? Or maybe it's just these last few years of the current hellscape have made me much less tolerant of grifters. Regardless, William Peter Blatty based his book on a pretty shaky premise. He added a lot, a lot of which informed William Friedkin's movie version. Some of the things added or changed by Blatty included changing the 14-year-old Roland to 12-year-old Regan, and of course, the inclusion of everyone's favorite demon, Pazuzu. Really quick, for anyone who hasn't seen, read, or gone through the wiki page for The Exorcist, the plot goes something like this. A family finds to their horror that their daughter is possessed by a demon. Several members of the clergy are called in to help exorcise the demon. Lots of supernatural brouhaha ensue, and the demon is expelled. I'm skipping over a lot of details, many of which are part of why so many people consider this movie a classic of horror cinema. I'm also skipping over the later abuses William Friedkin, the director of the movie, would inflict on his cast, including the permanent spinal injuries to 12-year-old Linda Blair, who played the possessed Regan. But I'm getting off track again. If you want to hear more about William Friedkin being a horrible person, and torturing his cast, I don't know, uh, maybe go bug Robert Evans to do a Behind the Bastards episode on him. Because I'm here to talk about mythological monsters. Okay, so back to demons. The ancient Mesopotamian ones, not the Hollywood ones. Now, Pazuzu, the demon named by William Peter Blatty in The Exorcist, is kind of an odd choice for a story that so heavily leans into Christian theology and practice. You know, what with the priests and the exorcism and the Latin and whatnot that are so prevalent throughout both the novel and the movie. Because Pazuzu isn't mentioned at all in the original Roland Doe case, by name or reputation. Blatty specifically inserted him into his novel, which seems like kind of a weird fit for one thing, Pazuzu isn't a part of Christian theology. He's not mentioned in the Christian Bible at all. Very few demons are, actually. In fact, Pazuzu is far older than Christianity. He belongs to a pantheon of spirits, gods, and demons that were worshipped in ancient Mesopotamia towards the end of the Bronze Age, around 1200 BC. So, like, literally a millennium before Christianity. In fact, the closest tie Pazuzu has to Christianity is through a pretty roundabout game of Six Degrees, 
in that Zuzu was an oppositional force to another demon, Lamashtu, who preyed on newborn babies. Lamashtu has some connections through linguistics and parallel functions to the Lilu, the Lilu being an Akkadian term for demons, which may possibly have a linguistic relationship to the Hebrew word Lilith. Lilith being often portrayed as a demoness, and in some Jewish traditions, she is interpreted as the first wife of the Adam, the first man, who featured prominently in the Genesis creation myth, which was later adopted into Christian and Islamic faith systems. I think that's six degrees, right? Azuzu hates Lamashtu, Lamashtu is related to the Lilu, Lilu might be functionally related to Lilith, Lilith is often portrayed as Adam's first wife, Adam features in the Genesis story, Genesis was adopted into the Christian Bible. Yep, six degrees. We got it. But it's unlikely that Blatty incorporated Pazuzu through such a convoluted method. By some accounts, Pazuzu's presence in the story is a bit more prosaic than that. See, it turns out that at one point, William Peter Blatty was in a museum in Mosul, Iraq and just happened to see a statuette of Pazuzu in a display. Years later, he would incorporate this demon into his novel, The Exorcist. In fact, Friedkin's movie opens up with a scene in Iraq, actually filmed there, where a statue of Pazuzu is uncovered. Interviews with Blatty haven't really provided much more detail than that. Blatty might have selected it for cultural significance, his family comes from Lebanon, which falls into the area in which Pazuzu would have been a culturally significant figure centuries and centuries ago. Or maybe he just saw the figurine in the museum and found its appearance and name intriguing and filed it away mentally for later use. We may never know. Authorial intent is tricky and doesn't always take us to satisfying places. But there are other reads we can have on the inclusion of the demon in the story. Other interpretations for the inclusion of Pazuzu in The Exorcist and why it resonated so much with people. Cultural reads and historical ones too. And as always, I'm not suggesting that there's some secret reason or hidden conspiracy behind William Peter Blatty writing Pazuzu into The Exorcist. Instead, I want to stress that the things that inspire authors and resonate with audiences often do so because of the things going on in their lives. Either things that have happened to them or things going on in the world around them that make these stories relevant to people. So. As far as authors go, William Peter Blatty was a child of Lebanese immigrants. His mother was a devout Catholic, a characteristic that William shared as well. He himself had a long successful career as a writer, in addition to taking on other jobs, such as working as a translator for U.S. intelligence in Lebanon. He was also apparently very close to his mother, to the extent that her death caused a crisis of faith for him which he then channeled into his writing. The character of the younger priest in The Exorcist is supposed to be based on Blatty himself, 
a devout Catholic undergoing a weakening of his faith. It's actually not an uncommon way for many people to describe their inner turmoil as struggling with or wrestling with inner demons. The fact that Vladdy's self-insert character literally fights demons is a metaphor that's maybe too on the nose. The Catholic character struggling with his faith literally fights an ancient demon that is <clears throat> hell-bent on tearing down the tenets of that faith. It's actually not uncommon for a lot of Vladdy's work. Faith and religion are very prominent in some of his books. As far as audiences go, though, there's a reason why this story of a foreign evil brought into the U.S. might have resonated with audiences at the time. And that reason is, in part, the Cold War? Now, those of you who are history buffs know that the Cold War was a period of political tension between the U.S. and Soviet Union from the 1940s through early 1990s over competing political ideologies. Capitalism, the U.S., versus Communism, the Soviet Union. And it heavily influenced, among other things, American pop culture during that period. As far as horror movies go, you see a number of movies from that time that feature idyllic, idealized, all-American life that gets disrupted by some sort of insidious, infiltrating presence that is determined to undermine these perfect American households. So the specter of communism takes on many forms in these Cold War era movies. In addition to science fiction horrors like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Thing, which promised abduction and forcible conversion for the unwitting victims, you had supernatural movies like Rosemary's Baby and the Amityville Horror that heavily featured specifically anti-Christian antagonists, sometimes Satanists or entities that were simply hostile to Christianity. For context, communism at the time was often framed by its detractors as a godless sort of political system. So in these movies, the forces of evil sought to supernaturally upturn wholesome American values and family structures. This is what I mean by cultural readings. And this isn't a new theory, by the way. It's actually a very common read of horror movies, that they reflect the collective anxieties of their eras. And it's not that the directors have some sort of psychic link into the American unconscious, but rather that if people are already anxious about something, then a horror movie that speaks to that fear is going to be, if not successful, at least very well received. So the short version is, successful horror movies tend to be cultural barometers, a way to measure where a given culture's fears are at any given time. So as far as The Exorcist goes, when we look at the ancient evil statue unearthed in Iraq, that gets sent to the U.S. that starts a heretical plague, it's hard to not read that as kind of a metaphor. By the by, couple of relevant historical points, and then I'll move on. Because I know Iraq isn't part of the Soviet Union. That's not the point I'm trying to make here, but I should probably clarify. So, in the late 1950s, about a decade after the real Roland Doe's exorcism, 
but about a decade before Blatty writes his book, Iraq as a country is going through some stuff. In the late 1950s, Iraq had experienced a wave of nationalism slash national identity, some of which focused on a cultural conception of the Iraqi people as an ancient people, stemming from ancient Mesopotamian cultures. Fast forward to the 1960s, and U.S. relations with Iraq weren't great. By the end of the decade, the U.S. had already been involved in several coups and revolutions in Iraq, generally involving the CIA. BT-dubs, the U.S. does this in a lot of countries. And the U.S. did this because, broadly, it didn't like how Iraq was managing its oil, or how close Iraq was getting to communism. It was already socialist at the time. Again, the U.S. does this a lot in other countries when they form governments that are inconvenient for the U.S. And interactions degraded between the U.S. and Iraq in 1967. Uh, Iraq officially severed diplomatic relations with the U.S. And by 1972, Iraq had formally nationalized its oil production in a partnership with the Soviet Union. Sorry for that brief history dump there. And I apologize for radically simplifying some very complex issues in global politics and history, but this is supposed to be a supernatural podcast. But the short version is that the U.S. has been very involved in trying to get Iraq's oil and keeping elements of socialism and communism out of Iraq. But over the course of the 1960s, the U.S. was not able to force socialism and communism out of Iraq. Sorry, I know, this is grossly condensed to maybe an irresponsible degree, and I apologize. There's just too much to cover for what I'm trying to do here. I swear, this is a scary story podcast. It's just... Context is important, and I wanted to give some background. So to bring this back to familiar ground, during the writing of and publication of The Exorcist in the late 1960s, early 1970s, the Cold War was going on, and that means that a fear of infiltration and conversion by godless forces, and I'm using that facetiously, was high in the American consciousness, and present in books, television, and movies, sometimes directly, like in movies like Red Dawn, and sometimes as metaphors, like in the ant-themed horror movie, THEM. So The Exorcist kicks off with an ancient Mesopotamian evil unearthed in Iraq that causes a blonde-haired, innocent American child to become possessed by a godless, corrupt entity. And not only is it opposed to good Christian values, but it's opposed to Christianity as a whole. Well, that definitely reads more as a Cold War paranoia expressing itself through pop culture. Simultaneous Cold War metaphors of communism coming through a proxy country. Uh, the foreign power is literally corrupting their youth. And interestingly, the movie resolves through the power of religion. Specifically, through the reassertion of Christian faith through Catholic practices and messianic sacrifice. But through that, two priests are able to purge the demon Pazuzu and its infectious hold on the young child. And that's actually kind of weird because that's the opposite 
of what Pazuzu is all about. Now, don't get me wrong, in ancient Mesopotamia, Pazuzu was worshipped as a demon, or at least as a fearsome, powerful entity. Not every word has a direct parallel, especially when we're translating across a vast expanse of time and space and culture. What I'm trying to do here is avoid labeling the culture in question as demon worshipping, and all the weird colonial judgments that come with a phrase like that. Uh, because there's a tendency both historically and presently when we view other cultures from a Western perspective to sometimes interpret non-familiar cultural practices as wrong or primitive or savage. And there's a long tradition of referring to non-Christian religions as demon worshipping and using that as a justification to enact a lot of different forms of violence on those cultures with such religions. Which is weird, because many of the cultures that get that treatment are sometimes older than Christianity and are, have existed longer than Christianity. And when we say ancient Mesopotamia, it's really kind of an umbrella term that covers a lot of civilizations from like 6000 BC to 400 AD. Civilizations like Sumer, Babylonia, Akkad, and Assyria. Primarily, we're going to be dealing with Assyria, Assyrian culture. And that's a lot of cultures across an area that spans a lot of what we now consider the Middle East. So a lot of cultures, a lot of time, and a lot of geography. Let me back that up. I mean a lot of time, a lot of permutations of faith systems, many of which have included the worshipping of many gods, single gods, and other more complex systems of worship. So when I say that Pazuzu was worshipped as a demon, it's not in the monotheistic way you might expect from a lot of modern day religions. It's that at various points, some of the cultures that recognized him as an entity treated him as both a fearsome being of great power, but also something to be invoked in select circumstances. So like, one of the things that we would often consider today part and parcel of worship is a temple or a church, some location for formal and organized worship to take place. And one of the things that's been notoriously absent from archaeological digs are anything like full-on temples to Pazuzu. In fact, the most common depictions of him that we've found are decorative items, often in the form of pendants, brooches, and carved seals. Pazuzu pendants often featured just his head, which was already a pretty fierce visage usually incorporated into his features were a number of animal elements, a canine muzzle, horns, human ears, and often some sort of grimace. The facial expression, not the McDonald's character. When his body was depicted, there were a, likewise a number of animal elements present as well. A scaled body, bird talons for feet, two pairs of wings, that's four total, a scorpion tail, 
and a snake for a penis. Now that's a look. A fearsome look, definitely. And maybe a form that some might consider demonic. And interestingly, it's a look that stayed pretty consistent for his tenure in Mesopotamian culture. According to Franz Wiegermann, an expert in Assyrian history, Pazuzu kind of popped onto the scene around 1200 BC and stuck around until maybe at least 63 BC. So, a lot of staying power. And maybe that tenure has something to do with the role he played in the Mesopotamian cultures in which he was recognized. Because, yes, demon-ish, in the sense that he was a malevolent supernatural entity. In fact, most depictions of Pazuzu describe his, quote, menacing appearance and angry disposition, or sometimes just describing him as furious. One inscription describes him as the most evil one among the Lilu, or depending on your translation, the most corrupt among them. The Lilu were a set of wind demons, and Pazuzu was their ruler, and presumably the most evil and corrupt among them. Pazuzu was the lord of the west wind, and associated with its destructive force. He roamed the mountains and oversaw his subjects, and more or less kept them in line, preventing them from endangering the mountains themselves, and chasing them down when they entered areas where humans lived. Which is interesting. You see, rather than encouraging wanton destruction on the parts of his subjects, the Lilu, he seemed to be very much in charge of enforcing their roles and range. And that said, as Lord of the Lesser Demons, he could be invoked to repel or banish them. Specifically, since the Lilu were thought of as lesser wind demons, they could enter homes and bring misfortune or sickness to the people who lived there. A ritual could be performed to invoke Pazuzu as a way to clear out the lesser demons, sort of the mystical equivalent of going over their heads and complaining to their boss, complaining to the demon's manager, if you will. The ancient ritual for this is kind of fascinating. Franz Wiegermann describes a translated ritual from Nineveh an ancient Assyrian city. The ritual includes a script, and it was likely that the intent was for someone to read the script as a sort of voice of Pazuzu, maybe a priest or anyone performing the ritual. The ritual itself seems to have been intended for clearing out the sickness in a house. The belief at the time was that the sickness was a result of the Lilu, one of those evil wind spirits setting up camp inside a home. And since Pazuzu was their boss, he could be invoked to expel them from a home. So the ritual goes like this. It begins with Pazuzu introducing himself to his hosts as the king of the evil winds. He then tells everyone about his recent deeds. This usually entails ascending the high mountains, meeting out violence on the evil winds by breaking their wings. And this was probably big talk to scare any Lilu that were hanging out inside the house. Pazuzu then speaks ominously about a wind that has escaped his notice and has hidden in a home. 
the verbal equivalent of giving the hidden Lilu a side eye. He then acknowledges everyone present, then commands the Lilu to leave, exerting both Pazuzu's power and subsequently invoking Marduk, the patron god of the city of Babylon. And you can see a sort of less than binary setup in this ritual than how we often interpret demons nowadays. For one thing, this ritual isn't anything nefarious. Rather, it's meant to help cure an illness. And interestingly, while we're clearly operating in a system with gods, the people conducting the ritual are going with the demon Pazuzu. Marduk, whose name is dropped at the end of the ritual, was a powerful god of the city of Babylon and associated with agriculture, judgment, and magic. He absolutely had temples and what we might consider as worship from our modern perspective. So we're looking at a culture that has a less binary or somewhat nuanced view on the roles of demons and gods vis-a-vis -vis human interactions. It's not so much this guy's a demon, so he does bad things, but rather this demon is in charge of bad things, so we're going to ask him to maybe protect us from the bad things, or at least rein them in. And that protection took on some pretty cool forms. I mentioned that there haven't been any temples to Pazuzu uncovered, but the ritual from Nineveh isn't the only record of him. In fact, he may have been a relatively popular demon to carry with you. The most common depictions of Pazuzu that we found are ones in the form of amulets, seals, and tablets. It seems that people would often wear amulets depicting Pazuzu's face, or full body as a form of protection often in conjunction with evocations to other deities. In the home, it was not uncommon to find seals or clay tablets depicting Pazuzu, often accompanied with detailed descriptions of what evils Pazuzu was protecting against. Depicted with his right arm raised, Pazuzu was ready to attack approaching evils. Pazuzu amulets were particularly popular with pregnant people. Bronze likenesses of his head were often worn by anyone pregnant with a child or kept near the newborn child. And this had to do with another one of his apotropaic functions. Apotropaic, meaning protective against evil. Impress your friends at your next cocktail party. In addition to keeping an eye on the lesser Lilu wind demons under his dominion, Pazuzu was also seen as a protector against another Assyrian demon a baby-killing demigoddess-slash-demon known as Lamastu. Now, we'll go in-depth into Lamastu in a later episode, because there's a lot to cover with her. From deep roots in ancient history, to similarities or even ties to later mythological entities like Lilith. But for now, let's just cover who Lamastu was in the context of Pazuzu. You might be familiar with the idea of rationalizing hardship through supernatural explanation. It's something that comes up a lot when looking at older beliefs through modern eyes. It's blaming a failed harvest on the whims of the gods. It's attributing a child's strange behaviors to the fairies. It's thinking that you lost or got a promotion because of a lucky charm. Most people want order. We want reasons for things. 
and the very least so we can know what steps to take to avoid misfortune in the future. So often, when we don't know for sure what caused a tragedy, we'll often blame bad luck, or a curse, or the fairies, or a demon. And for ancient Assyrians, when people encountered the tragedy of death, particularly the senseless and painful death of a child, they blamed Lamastu. Lamastu was a particularly heinous demon who specialized in the deaths of children, harming mothers and causing complications and deaths with pregnancy. To the ancient Assyrians, she was a nasty piece of work, and understandably, a demon to avoid whenever possible. Enter Pazuzu. Beyond being invoked to expel sickness from a house, it seemed that Pazuzu's most popular usage was in repelling Lamastu's presence. In fact, there's even some scholarly debate on whether Pazuzu was conceived of as an intentional counter-agent, an answer to Lamastu. And there is a kind of logic there? Follow along with me. People identify a tragedy that happens routinely, deaths surrounding pregnancy and children, and they conceive of a cause for it, some malevolent demon. Remember what we said about rationalizing hardship through the supernatural? And they want a solution, so they come up with a logical one. What can stop a demon? Why, another demon, of course. And from what we can tell through archaeological study, Pazuzu was the go-to guardian against Lamastu's predations, so much so that bronze amulets of Pazuzu's head were likely common accessories for mothers and mothers-to-be. Sort of like the ancient Mesopotamian version of a car seat, a must-have for keeping your baby safe. Tablets bearing likenesses of Pazuzu fending off Lamashtu were also apparently household accoutrements. These amulets and tablets would often come with an inscription on them, meant to be the words of Pazuzu himself, warning any lesser being or Lamastu that he was on watch against them. Sha Maldi Arshija, Sin Sha Argoch. The home that I enter, you shall not enter. The courtyard that I enter, you shall not enter. Or sometimes, more simply, the home that I enter, you shall not enter. And that's what makes Pazuzu such an odd choice for William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist. Not that he wasn't a fierce ancient demon, but because he was a fierce ancient demon who also protected people against sickness and protected children from the predations of demons. So think back to that famous scene in The Exorcist where Linda Blair is spewing green vomit possessing a 12-year-old child and causing her pain, discomfort, and physical illness. It actually seems more like the sort of thing Lamastu would do. Or maybe some other Lilu that happened to slip into the house. In fact, if poor Regan's possession had taken place in ancient Mesopotamia, there's a good chance her family would have specifically called upon Pazuzu to help free her from possession. Maybe even using that same ritual we mentioned before where Pazuzu would come in, flex his titles, and order any lesser demons out of the possessed child.
Oh, and speaking of that ritual, remember how I said it was found in Nineveh, an ancient Assyrian city? Well, Nineveh, as it was, isn't really around anymore. There is a city there today, located in northern Iraq. You might know it as Mosul. And it's the same city that William Peter Blatty would visit as a young man and go to a museum where he would see a small statue on display with a fearsome face and a placard with the name Pazuzu. Happy holidays, sweet darlings. I hope you've enjoyed this trip into the ancient past and not-so-ancient Hollywood. Today's episode drew from a number of sources. Franz Wiegermann's Encyclopedia of Assyrology and Near Eastern Archaeology. Lauren Cantor's Medium article, The Haunting Journey of William Peter Blatty. And Mark Obsasnik's Strange Mag Investigation of Roland Doe's story, The Haunted Boy of Cottage City. This episode was written and produced by me, Kari Clements. Our cover art was created with the Wombo Dreams app. If you enjoyed this episode of Trans Arcana and want more of our mixture of queer theory and occult lore, you can follow us on Twitter at Trans Arcana. That's T-R-A-N-S-A-R-C-A-N-A at twitter.com. If you'd like to keep Trans Arcana running, you can donate to the Ko-Fi on our Twitter page. Proceeds will go towards getting weird occult books so I can keep making episodes. And if any unwanted demons or relations show up this holiday, just tell them, the home that I enter, you shall not enter.